0: Hi, I'm Valerie Moizel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's. The initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order. And yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is she dynasty. Welcome to episode three of She Dynasty on the Road, San Francisco edition. In this episode, we will be speaking to Kathy Stoffer, the chairman of the board of BevMo. She's also a consumer retail marketing, branding, and technology expert with over 30 years of experience building successful businesses. She's also a board member of Fleer Systems, which is an incredible technology company. As I mentioned before, if the sound is not what you're used to, Please bear with us as this is She Dynasty on the road. I'm here with Haley Stanfield from the Wu. Haley, what would you like to learn from Kathy today? I've heard lots about Kathy in the past four years that I've worked at the Wu. We had a lot of client work through her. And I'd really like to hear about how she guided that path in her career and how she got to the place she's at today. And, you know, most importantly, actually how she approaches a world that's very commanded by men. So she's been in very high-powering executive roles in a tech industry, which isn't a lot of times women. And I'd love to hear more about how she handles that and how she helps other women look at it. Clearly, she was very successful in her journey, so I can't wait to hear about that. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Valerie. How are you? I'm great. It's been a long time. I know. It's so good to see you. Probably around 10 years. It has. It's just hard to believe. I know. Time goes fast. Many of you might remember in my personal interview, I actually mentioned Kathy. So Kathy was working at the time as the president, I think, of The Good Guys, Mm -hmm. and we pitched the business, and Kathy made a huge impact on me because when we won the business, she took it upon herself to actually fly down and come and personally award us the business. We didn't expect it. She opened the front door, she was holding champagne, and I think I cried like a baby that day just because <laughs> it was really like an incredible moment for me. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It
0: was one of the funnest parts of my job to be able to do something like that, absolutely. It's amazing to me how unclear many people are on what it means to sit on a board of a large, corporation, let alone be the chair. So tell us, who is higher in a company, chairman
1: or the CEO? <laughs> well, with chairman, there's, there can be two kinds. There can be an executive chairman and there are non-executive chairman. I happen to be a non-executive chairman currently. So if you're non-executive, you're not really an employee of the company. So the CEO really is, I always say, there can only be one CEO, right? There can only be one leader of the company and, and that should be the CEO. Some companies, they combine the two, but I think in general, best governance is to separate the two roles because it's hard to be objective about your own work, right? The chair's job and the board's job is really to help with oversight. Then there's also public and private companies and I happen to sit on boards of both. I'm chairman of two private companies. I'm a board member on a public company. In my case, and with the private equity firm I work with, which happens to be Tower Brook Capital Partners, they use public company governance because it's a best practice.
0: So can you tell us very simply how you describe your job of sitting on all these boards? What do you do on a daily basis when you're there?
1: Absolutely. I probably think you know, one of the most important things is having an effective CEO, right? Because the, board's, the board really reports to the shareholders. So the board's job is to return value to the shareholders.
0: So if the board feels that the CEO is non-effective, you guys have the power to remove the CEO? Yes, that's right. Wow. That's right. Everyone reports to
1: someone. Absolutely, (laughs) correct. Right, just as the board reports to the shareholders, yeah.
0: So I know this is kind of your current role. Yes. And you have had an incredibly long career in technology, uh, multiple brands, and we're Mm -hmm. going to talk about those and your journey of how you got here. But I want to back up because you had an incredible story to tell and we want to hear a bit
1: about your childhood so my childhood i think as is everyone's childhood was unique so i am the youngest of seven i think now as an adult and as i look back these were things that you know deeply affected me at the time and i think definitely affect who i am now i lost my mother at a very young age when i was three and my older brothers and sisters were obviously older Five of them were all one year apart, and so they were in their teens when they when they lost my mother. My father, so finding himself being a single father with seven oh children, gosh, I also at home, yeah.
0: Did your mother die suddenly? Was it expected?
1: It was sudden. She died of breast cancer. My understanding is, of course, I don't remember it personally, but my understanding was, and this was in the early 60s, that she went for regular checkups to the Mayo Clinic. Of course, they didn't have any of the technology of that they had today. and like six months later, I think they, after she had had a regular routine checkup, found uh, something. And at that point, it just, it it just sort of swept through her body very quickly. And um, she didn't live with the diagnosis very long. So she passed, you know, pretty quickly thereafter is my understanding. Do you have any memories of her? I don't, I don't. And, you know, as I always said, I didn't remember my mom, but then when I became a mother and got to when my son was three. And I knew how intensely close we were and just how much, I mean, how much I tried to teach him, how much we both drew from each other. I thought, you know, how wrong of me to ever say I didn't know my mother. Of course I knew her, I just didn't remember her because for whatever reason we don't have memories in of those course. in those early years. So I know that she had a really big influence on me, I just don't remember any of that. But it was just interesting experiencing motherhood through Having my own child, right. right. It just taught me a lot about the kind of relationship I must have had with my own mother and how that, you know, sort of anchored me and and grounded me. So your dad was left with seven kids. So my dad was left with seven kids. And within a year, he remarried and he was an executive. So on the road a lot and entertaining a lot. As you can imagine, five of my siblings were teenagers, and the last thing they wanted was another mother. I mean, they were still grieving, I'm sure, and I cannot imagine what it was like for her either to inherit seven children. She had two children of her own, but... One was, I think, already in college and one was finishing up high school. And it was like total organ rejection by my family. Uh, I think if if it weren't for that, I probably would have called her mom and thought of her as my mom. And at that time in the 60s, I mean I felt like I was the only one that had a stepmother. I mean, divorce was not something that was common, or at least it wasn't talked about. I didn't know anybody else that had ever lost, you know, a parent to death. So I always it was always something I was very private about and awkward about. So it was just something I didn't really. Talk about, but no, she tried her best. And uh, then, by when I was 13, so 10 years later, my dad passed away. Oh my gosh! And at that point, all my older siblings were out of the home, so it was just me and my stepmother. So she was grieving losing my dad. Was that, I was, was grieving. Was that sudden? It was sudden. So it was really hard, and neither one of us were happy. Uh, so we we tried. For a while.
0: So did you, go, did you continue to live with
1: her? Yeah, we did for a while and then it was just it was just hard. It was just very, very hard and neither one of us seemed to get comfort from each other. So we left. We were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I told you my dad was in the steel business. We moved back to California where I was from and where most of my family was. But when you're 13, your whole world is kids. So it was just the world was upended. I, we moved to California. I really didn't have any friends. But we were both we were both grieving. So a couple years later, I ended up moving out and moving in with my brother and his wife, um, who lived nearby. So I still went to the same school district. Uh, I was sixteen; he was twenty-four, and wow, he was in no position of- to be right editorial. to be parenting a sixteen-year-old. And I didn't want to be parented. Uh, so I graduated from high school early. I really desperately wanted to be on my own, and I was heading off to college. And then I thought. Ah, don't want to depend on anybody. I really want to stand on my own two feet. So at that point in time, I was 17 and I had developed a relationship with a fellow that was just starting his own business called The Good Guys. He was a single father and he had a three-year-old daughter. So I first met him by babysitting. So when I was, um, when my dad was still alive, my sisters lived in San Francisco. And San Francisco, to me, represented freedom. I mean, it was the first time I saw so many things. First time I saw a biracial couple. first time I you know, went to concert at Golden Gate Park, first time I saw people you know, smoking pot, just right. the first time, anything right, right. and everything. Uh, and so he would allow me to come out and spend the summers with them, which I loved when I was 12 years old. And my sisters told my dad that they were taking the time off while I was staying with them, but they weren't. So it was like, Kathy, don't get in trouble while we're at work all day. And they lived down on um, Polk Street, down by Ghirardelli Square. And I would go down where the bongo players would hang out. And it was a very hippie, hippie time in the 70s. So long story short, this this fellow who ended up starting The Good Guys, he was a single dad that my sister knew. And he was trying to get this business off the ground. So I'm 12 years old. He had a three-year-old, needed somebody to babysit this child. They needed to make sure I was safe all day while they were at work. So they sort of matched us up. Oh my so I babysat. So you go Amy. way back, yeah, with the good guys. way back, way back, and um, and you know we trusted each other, right? He trusted me with his daughter, and and we kept each other out of trouble, and so we kept in touch. And then he started Good Guys that summer when I decided I really wanted to to, to be on my own, and he offered me a job. And my family did not want me to do it. I was throwing my life away. And what you was need the to job go to, to college. Be whatever. Just, just salesperson he, or just kind of assist him. Very vague. Just opened this a stereo just store. Just come of over all and things. start working in the 1970s. A stereo store. Yeah. I love it. Uh, and I just said, yeah, you know, a little bit of everything. Buying, no, not selling. Buying product, marketing, whatever was needed. And I said, I'm up for it. So I did, and I think we, we literally grew up together. At that point in time, the consumer electronics industry was really in its infancy. I mean, this was just when the you know, Betamax and VHS was coming out. I think the average home had two consumer electronic devices. Today the average home has over 26 devices. What
0: were the two at the time?
1: Uh, It was a TV and a radio because phones were still supplied by mobile and you didn't buy those.
0: From two to 26 in your lifetime, I love
1: that. From there I went through the different, I went through buying and advertising and we went through an IPO. Um, and I was very involved in that. And it was just such a great education.
0: You kind of started with him as a babysitter, moved into just a whatever, hire you to do whatever kind of role, and then just started to get more important jobs as the company became more and more structured. Because by the time I met you, it was a full-blown yes. company that was very structured. Right. With I think l-
1: we were a public company. Correct. Yeah yeah absolutely It got story. to be about a billion dollars in sales a
0: billion dollars in sales yeah so am i right to assume that you didn't go to college
1: i didn't oh my gosh yeah.
0: amazing so this it is, is an, a really incredible moment just because you know so many people feel like you can't be successful if that's the case and I'm a firm believer that that's not true. I've met so many incredible women who have figured it out. You know, I look at you as one of the strongest women I know. Just so resilient and kind. And, you know, you just seem like you really have it together Tell us, where do you pull pull
1: that from, you know, after going through such trauma as a child? I mean, Um, I don't think of it that way, is that I went through a lot of trauma. I mean, I know that was hard, but everybody, you know, the older you get and the more people that you meet, I mean, that's one thing you know is everyone has a story. The whitest, straightest, most affluent man you want to meet, I mean, they, they... they, everybody's got a story right right that, that, that is shaped and we just don't always get to hear those things. And why people are more resilient than others I do not know but I feel lucky that I am um, and that my life didn't go in a different direction and that uh, you know this this first job really gave me an opportunity. I mean it probably was against the law the number of hours I was working <laughs> but it was things but, changed right <laughs> but it was it was good for me. It kept me, I mean, at 17, I had my own apartment in San Francisco, my own. I mean, I was living on my own.
0: What was that first spark that made you think, I need some independence? Like, what was your driving force? You know, drove I, you?
1: at the time, I, I don't think I thought about why. I just thought, this is what I need to do. I just, if I'm going to explode, if I'm, if I'm not I'm standing on my own two feet. But um, as I've gone through my life and just reflected on it, I think it's probably when you lose... Your support, you know, what is supposed to be your support system, not to take anything away from my siblings, but your parents, then, you know, you, it comes down to, well, who can I count on? And it's yourself, right? You're, you're responsible for yourself. You're responsible for your happiness. You're responsible for the direction in your life. And I think, I think that was what drove me. So I will not be dependent again, I think is sort of where I got my spark.
0: So back to your job at The Good Guys, working in the stereo TV
1: business, there must not have been a lot of other women there. There was not. uh, So a couple things. When I was interviewing for the job, because it wasn't like it was just given to me, I did interview and I did have to earn everything. And two things I would just say that I was always very aware of and um, sort of fighting against in my own mind was uh, that I didn't want anybody to think that it had been given to me and that we had this personal relationship because that that's a stretch. I mean, I saw him for two minutes was like, I'm going to work, okay, I hope everything's fine. I mean, we did not know each other well. He trusted me with his daughter, but that was about it. It wasn't like, you know, it w- nepotism or any, anything like that. I wanted to earn every single bit of what I got. And then um, not having gone to college, I mean, I was slightly embarrassed and ashamed about that and, you know, just felt um, less than adequate because of that. So I didn't talk about that much, just like I didn't talk much about having a stepmother rather than a a biological mother, so I was very street private. Mar-
0: street smarts versus book smarts. Yeah, but no, we really
1: important for sure now, but then uh, I mean it was obvious I was so young. So not only was I a female, I was just so young.
0: But you were also so driven. I
1: mean, the yeah. fact that you wanted to be independent and get out no, there and that's get a job true. and work your butt right.
0: off. I mean, that's incredible. Yeah,
1: that, that was that was good, but it was a very male-dominated industry. Uh, so I had one female influence, and this one stuck with me when, she, when I was being interviewed, and she was not nice. She was not welcoming. She worked at the good guys? She did. Okay. And she was um, just mean, and I somewhat I, now I would say bitter and hostile. Why? I do not know. I don't think it was directed towards me, but I remember thinking to myself, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to let that happen to me. She was probably in her mid to late 30s. So you kind of internalized the way she. So I just you. remembered that, and I was just like, I, you know, if I ever feel that way, I'm going to change what I'm doing because, man, I do not want to be that person. So that was sort of a negative influence. And then it, it was male dominated in the stores. The people I worked with, they were great. They were fun. Um, they were all like big brothers. And I had a strict no dating policy because it was all guys. But the when I started was doing, that your
0: policy or the company.
1: Policy. Oh, that was my policy. Because oh, again, I just didn't want any like whispers, rumors, right. you know, how to you? Right. But when I started doing buying, merchandise buying and media buying, uh, um, you know, the average person was probably, you know, between 40 and 55 white male. And I mean, you could, it was visible. They, as soon as they'd see me, you know, it's just like, just we it. got it. We yeah. got it. Young. She's, you know, right. we'll roll right over her. Right. And so I just got so. Oh no, you don't. So tough. So you felt you had to prove yourself. Oh, I had to because I mean it was it was it was visible. They didn't even try to pretend that they respected me, right? I mean it was from the get go. So at seventeen, I started, and by nineteen, um, I was checked into uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friend, and Influence People because I went so far to the oh no, you don't kind of approach and. Ron Unkafer, who was the founder of Good Guys, taught me, you know, he, he told me something one day, and this goes back to the bringing you the flowers and the champagne. And he, he said, Kath, he said, you're doing such a great job. He said, but I think sometimes you come on so strong to let people know that they can't take advantage of you, that people don't know how to deal with that. And he said, uh, people will do so much for you because they have to, because you know, you're know you writing the checks or you're in charge, but they'll do so much more because they want to. And that incremental, that extra 1% or 2% or 3% you get from people because they want to, not just because they have to, whether it's you're negotiating a price, you're trying to get the double truck in the newspaper, you're trying to get you know, whatever it is. That 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 can be the competitive advantage that others don't have and be your secret weapon and that stuff that, was. That's, that's with
0: incredible, me. incredible advice. Yeah. You mentioned in your pre-interview that you hit a snag the first time you got a full-time job in an office. Yes. Can you share that experience
1: with us? Yes. Yeah, so when I first started with the company, we were small, we didn't have an office. So it was in the store and it was in the back room of the store. The vendors would just come into the store and, and show you the product and demo it right there. But then we got big enough that we moved into an office, which was attached to the distribution center. And I would go in there. At first visits, you had to go into the warehouse because you had to physically count boxes to see what you had in inventory. We didn't have inventory systems yet. And uh, then I moved in there full-time when I became a full-time in charge of buying. And the women in the office, which tended to be, it was in accounting. It was primarily accounting. We really didn't have an HR department yet. It was a big open space. We were all in one space. Uh, But they were sort of over there, and I was sort of over here. And they were just not nice to me. I don't know... Why I, I, you know, I have feelings it might have been partly because I did know the owner, partly because I was doing non-traditional women's roles, doing the merchandise buying and the advertising buying, That's what which I would, traditionally that would be had guess. been men, I think so. And um, one day, this was sort of my defining moment, which I never shared with my boss, but I went to... I think all women could relate to this. This was in the 70s, which wrap skirts, skirts were yeah. big in, and so I went into the restroom. And uh, came back out and went back over to my desk, and you know, the other girls are snickering like they just always seem—they always seem like they had an inside joke when I was walking by, and they just never like invited me into the conversation. So I got used to that, and uh, it was happening this particular day. And I walked back to my desk and I went to sit down. You smooth—you know—you smooth your your skirt as you normally do before you sit down. And I realized my skirt was tucked into my panties. And they didn't tell me. I mean, come on. I mean, when you don't even, I mean, on a personal, I mean, you don't even just say, come on. And I was probably still 10 years younger than them. I mean, I was just, I started so painfully young. And that was just like, God. Well, I love,
0: listen, I think that what you just talked about is an incredible, teachable moment. You know, this idea of being a woman in a man's world, we have to be careful not to overcompensate because the second you do that, people are going to call you out on it. Right. And so we're always kind of struggling to find this balance of, you know, how do I just fit in and be seamless and not feel too feminine or too masculine, but just kind of be steady with everybody else. And I think that that is, it's a challenge. It's a real challenge, especially in an industry like you were in.
1: It is. And so the male dominated part was really hard, but the thing that really was hardest on me was when women aren't nice or inclusive to other women. Right. And it's particularly younger like, women. Yeah, and
0: that, and by the way, that's a big part of why this podcast was important to me. Just because for me Um, I wanted Qi Dynasty to be a space where women could help each other rise up and we could cross-mentor each other. And I can't stand the competitiveness. And, you know, for me, it's about, like, how do we all help each other succeed versus me, you know, put you down so that I can rise up. So you can stand on my right. And I think that that's something that we, you know, absolutely have to obviously instill in younger generations if we're going to become stronger as Mm -hmm. leaders. I think it's something that's really, really
1: important. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So you eventually worked your way up to be the president of the good guys. How large was the company at that point?
1: We got to be about a billion dollars in sales. That's yeah. incredible. Yes. Yeah. So you were there from yeah. the
0: inception all the way to a billion dollars in sales.
1: I was, with the exception of that, I took two leaves of the absence. So I left at um, twenty six, came back at twenty seven, and then I worked until I was thirty three. And it was it was different because that second chapter, we were, it was as a public company, and it was just entirely different because the first five years were sort of growing it from a a startup into a legitimate company, and then the next five years was really running it as a public company with, you know, just more discipline and the whole industry had grown up. It had gotten much more professionalized, not just our business, but the business around us. I
0: think it's so incredible that you were there from the inception of a business that became a public company and stuck through it all the way through and had that experience. I mean, that just must have been an unbelievable journey. It was,
1: it was a lot of hard work, and I you learned grew up so with the company. much. You... I grew up with the company and the industry, really, the whole consumer technology industry, because it was it was still pretty much its infancy when I started.
0: At the time, were there a lot of women who had no. a
1: position like yours in a tech company? There just weren't women at all. Maybe in sales, you know, in media sales, and marketing, in some, but not that many. It was still largely. I remember when I first met you and you were introduced as the
0: president thinking, oh my gosh, I've never met a woman president before. And let alone a, you know, a tech company, like it was so wow to me.
1: Because I started there at 17 and I realized I had gotten a great education there that I still, it was, it was not as well-rounded as I would like. So I had planned to take a year's leave of absence and travel. A good friend of mine had gotten a double uh, major in art history and um, english literature and he wanted to go to europe and i thought great i can get the other half of my education and follow him around so we were going to do that and ron the ceo at the time talked me into waiting until we went through the ipo he said it's going to be such a great education so i was 24 then so i said ah you know what if i die in a car accident i you know it's like (laughs) i don't think i can wait but i agreed to wait a year and then i took a year off traveled and saw the world and then came back this is before you and i met and so I took that one-year break. And then um, I left again in the early 90s. Um, again, because I'd been there my entire adult State of break. life. And I just wanted to open myself up to other things. Right. So my husband and I were going to take um, a year and travel. Did you
0: um, think when you left that you were going to come
1: back to no. your job? No. no. This you time left. I said, I'm leaving. Got it. Company's in good hands, Got on it. firm footing. It's a good place. I'm going to go. I actually gave a year's notice I mean it's so rare but we we left on really you know everyone knew I trained my replacements it was all good and open there was no like
0: I wish people would give me a year's notice (laughs) I mean it was so
1: unusual now that would be way too painful but it it happened to work at that time because I'd grown up with the company Uh, so I left uh, but before we even like got in the car to get on an airplane to travel and see the world I was just not feeling right and my husband's like, oh God, is this what she's going to be like when she's not working? I was just, ah, oh, just, I don't want to do that. I do want to do that. I wasn't happy. Oh, I was pregnant. And we had wanted to, to, to get pregnant, but uh, it just hadn't happened. And it was like, as soon as I decided to open myself up, it Isn't was like, reason? it was amazing. Yeah. Yes. We hadn't Less done anything stress. else. Yeah. Right. Um, and I was just suddenly pregnant. So I thought, well, I'll just take this as, you know, serendipity. Here we are not planning on working. It's a sign. Rather than just taking a few weeks of maternity leave, which I probably would have done if I had been working, I uh, had my baby when I was 34, and I stayed home as a stay-at-home mom for the first two years.
0: So that's a major shift going from you know running this big corporation to being a stay-at-home
1: mom. It was. How did you deal with that? I mean, you know, as a mom, right? I mean, it's it's like a love affair that you've never experienced before when you have a child, and you, you don't know what it's going to be like until you have one. Uh, so that was wonderful. I really, really loved it, but I missed working because I loved working. I loved it. But I enjoyed, I really enjoyed the baby years. I felt very fortunate to have that time. My husband had a, a retail business of his own at that time. But then when I decided I wanted to go back to work, and I was 35 that no by then I was 36 and I just didn't want to tempt the fates um my delivery was hard and the doctor had said it'd be hard if I had another and usually I in my life I've always wanted more but in this case it was like no I'm happy I don't want to tempt the fates and you know have, have another so let's just go with what we have healthy happy son and when I decided to go back to work. My husband said, "You know, I would be happy to be a stay-at-home dad because I knew my work style I and mean, I throw myself into mm-hmm. it, and I knew that I would be travel. It would just involve a lot of travel. It always has um, when you get to a certain level in, in tech." So I said, "Okay." When my son was three, I went back to work, and my husband became a stay-at-home dad. I love that. Me too, and it was great for everyone. He was great at it. It was great for my sons and boys. You know, coach for all of his teams, and I could um, go to all my trips to Asia and New Jersey, and not feel guilty <laughs> that you were leaving your
0: kid with a nanny. Yeah, or have to rush to mm-hmm. get
1: you know for for daycare and amazing knowing that we were. Yeah, it was our one one shot at having a, a child. So,
0: so where did you go work?
1: I was drawn back to Good Guys. Oh, you were? I was. So at that point in time, they had sort of lost their way. I think they had grown too fast. They had uh, hired quite a few people from um, Circuit City at that time. Mm -hmm. I don't know why,
0: but I remember a very iconic ad campaign with a song. It was all over television. The Good Guys, they've, they've got to be good. Is that right? Would you like to sing them? No, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but I remember, I mean, it was a very heavy media buy. It was on TV all the time. I remember. Yes,
1: you could Google it, and you could find it and today. everybody was Everybody's dancing, in their colored blazers dancing. and dancing. Were yes, you part of that? I was. <laughs> that was, I think, a classic case of where our CEO had come from PepsiCo. So while I was gone, the company had sort of gotten a, a whole new, different, you know, all the sort of original people had left. Yeah. The CEO had uh, come from PepsiCo. And he's like, I think we should have a jingle. And, you know, I I think things in advertising and marketing should be more organic, like the message should find the medium rather than the medium finding the message.
0: Everybody was singing that song. I I know.
1: know. I know. I know. So I said, OK, well, we'll go get a jingle. (laughs) And it was, uh, yeah, filmed at our Beverly Hills store overnight and it was oh my gosh yeah it was if there was such thing the things going viral because it, it would was have a little gone viral. ahead of that yeah because well, a little ahead of the internet absolutely yeah, it was just
0: unusual that. because you had um you know an electronics store with a bunch of people who worked in it that were doing choreographed dance and right. singing they were so happy and because they're the good guys they've <laughs> right. got to be good they
1: got, that's exactly what the song was you know i had only come back purely to make sure that they'd have a soft landing it was not to stay right. there for a long time so i felt like yeah, you know my mission was accomplished and i stayed for the first six months of the transition to make sure that they had the vendor and employee support and then i yeah, and then I went to Gateway Computers. So um, and your role there was the uh, CMO, CMO and chief marketing EVP. officer. Yeah, chief marketing officer and EVP.
0: Also, another very yeah. iconic brand. It was um, it was a brand that had the uh, cow pattern on the boxes. That's right. With the green type, and I
1: remember that being walking into the stores, and that was like very graphic. And- yes. So kind of iconic in its own way. Very iconic. And at that time, um, it was a multi-billion dollar company.
0: Interesting our paths met again there, just because I think I got a phone call from you just because we had worked together. And you asked us to be um, the wild card in a pitch for Gateway Computers. Yes. And I remember um, David, my partner at the time, telling you that, you know, well, we're so much smaller than the bigger agencies that are pitching. And you said, you know, I think you guys might have a shot. You know, I saw kind of how hard you worked at Good Guys and I'd like to see what you guys do. And I remember the pitch so well just because I think that, you know, we wanted it so bad. Obviously, to beat someone like Gray or Crispin was like a big deal for us. So it was a great conversation. You know, sometimes you walk out of a pitch and you feel good about it. And we felt great about it. And then I remember getting um, a call from you a few weeks later telling us that, unfortunately, we hadn't won um, the above the line, but you were very interested in us doing a lot of the below the line because you felt that our thinking and our you know, strategic work and some of the creative that we showed would be a really nice compliment to Crispin, who you had chosen. That's right. And I was thrilled because you know, just the chance to work with you again was really exciting. So at Gateway... What are some of the accomplishments that you were most proud of there?
1: So Gateway was really fun. So it was a, um, like I said, a multi-billion dollar company founded in computers, was in international B2B, education, retail. It had uh, Gateway country stores. I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. those or not, but it was really, you know, it's from um, North Dakota. And so it was this real sort of country cow thing. Uh, but didn't really have a breadth of product at all. It wasn't very interesting, there were just a lot of CPUs that was you know, not very dynamic visually to walk into, and they were just hemorrhaging money. So when I came in, one of the first things we did was close the Gateway Country stores, and for the very first time ever, sold in third-party retail. So we uh, launched in Best Buy, we launched in Walmart in the US, uh, and then did the same in their counterparts in Western Europe and in Japan because up until that time, the only way you could buy Gateway was 1-800-GATEWAY or gateway.com or through these Gateway Country stores. And within the first six months of our retail launch, we were the number two brand at retail. We went from nothing to number two to um, HP Compact because they had recently merged. And so that was a a major accomplishment, Uh, but even bigger than that was we had stopped the losses of the the company was starting to make money again. Um, It had been upside down. It had been manufacturing still in the US when everything was being done offshore. Just the whole business model didn't work. And it was interesting because there was 12 of us in the executive leadership team, and all of us came in new um, at the same time, more or less. And we all proceeded to transform both our own area, you know, functional areas Mm -hmm. and the the company as a whole. So it was, it was so fun and exhilarating because we really had to depend on each other to, um, you know, have our backs, but also you do you and I'll do me and just let's just all do it at the same time and, you know, get this company chugging again, which we were able to do really quickly. Uh, so I was going to move to Southern California. I've always lived in San Francisco it was April, I think, when I accepted that position. So we were going to have my son finish, I think he was in fourth grade, fourth or fifth grade, and then look for homes on mm-hmm. the weekend. My husband and son would come out, and they were located in San Diego, but we were going to move to Orange County. So we did that, um, and it was at like the peak of the real estate market at that time. It was about 2004 and we come from san francisco i thought it'd be a pretty easy move but the real estate was awful we live in the city but these suburban places we were seeing had smaller yards than what we have in our house in the city and just places we just didn't even want to live in and they were expensive and we just couldn't find anything and interest was waning you know at first it was like yeah we're going to learn to surf we already got our disneyland annual passes we were like going to totally embrace it um so june school was out we had our goodbye going away party. We were gonna lease our house in San Francisco, not, not sell it, but we still hadn't found a place. The CEO of Gateway, who had been you know, a friend and his wife, uh, were selling their home in a subdivision called Cota de Casa. Uh-huh. And my understanding is that's where the original Real Housewives of Orange County oh, interesting. Were, was based in Cota de Casa, this little know. subdivision. Okay. So they said, we're selling their house. They're moving to a bigger house. Uh, in Irvine, you know, maybe you should buy our house and we could just do it that way. And I'm like, oh, maybe we finally found something. So um, they invited me over to spend the night with uh, Wayne and Shannon. And I did that. And that night I went for a walk and I called my husband. I said, I can't do it. I just can't. I can't. You know, I think the outside world thinks California is one great, big, crazy place, but there's some big, big differences between oh, Northern God. and Southern California. Oh, big. It's just, it's, they're like two different planets in some ways. And, uh, you know, I said, I'm, I'm work when I'm down here, it's a turnaround. So I'm working all the time or I'm in Asia or I'm at, at dinners, uh, what I call force fun being entertained. <laughs> and, uh, so to have them move down only for me to be gone all the time. Didn't make sense. No. And I was like, hey, wait, well, is my husband going to get a boob job? I mean, is he gonna, <laughs> how's he going to fit in <laughs> with all these other stay-at-home parents right. and go to Decaza? Right. It's just not going to work. Right. So I called him up. I said, I can't do it. I just can't. I just don't feel right about it. And we'd already told the, the uh, head of schools that my son wasn't going to re-enroll the next year. And I said, call him up. Make sure we can get him back in school. Yeah. And I talked to Wayne. Uh, the CEO, and I explained to him, and he said, You know, that's fine. I get it. I said, you know, Let me just commute. Um, that way, when I'm here, I'm here completely. Right. Focused. And um, so as long as it works, while. it works. Yeah, and he agreed. He said, As long as it works, it works. I was the only female on the executive leadership team, and it, we just had a good dynamic. It was it was just working right. then, the 12 of us. Good so you, for you flew back how yeah. often? Well, you know, with um, Intel and Microsoft being up here, I mean, you know, I would always fly in early, like at the early flight is into John Wayne, LAX, I could not have done, went into John Wayne um, early Monday morning. And then it would depend. Sometime I come back uh, Friday night, sometimes Thursday night. If I was going to have meetings up here, it, it varied. But basically every week, and but it was always a like a coming home party. Every my husband and son would pick me up at the airport, and it was like See party for quality the weekend time on exactly. the weekend. Yeah, Love yeah. That. So if we did it for about a year, and they would come down, and we would use those Disneyland annual passes. Uh, but after about a year, the turnaround was well. I wouldn't say complete, but it was it was well on its way. I it would say it's 95% done. And I felt like it was getting more steady state, which is less interesting to me. I really like businesses and transformation. And they had urged me to try to get my own apartment there rather than stay in a hotel. And I, I just felt it's hard enough to lead to one life. That's yeah. that's good, rather than having two lives. So uh, I said, yeah, I think it's time. Yeah, you, you guys are fine, it's time. Uh, Wu was was still doing the advertising work for him, and um, I left and came back to San Francisco, where my husband's son had never left. And I um, was talking to a couple companies about uh, CEO roles as a, a, a startup of a couple of venture-backed companies. So you're about to tell us another major shift in your That's right. In your career. Yes. Here. Okay, go ahead. All right. So I was super close. So I, was, I was like trying to decide, is it going to be this one or is it going to be that one? And then I remember I was sitting in the car. I was finishing a conversation with somebody on, on one of the two CEO roles that I was considering. And... They had sent me the contract and I was looking at it and, you know, it talked about a five-year time frame because that's what they thought the exit would be before we we did a probably an an IPO. And I thought, you know, in five years, my son's going to be almost 16. And the difference between a 10-year-old and a 16-year-old, I mean, it's just, it's too fast. And I I know my work style. I throw myself into it and I know how demanding a startup, let alone a VC-backed startup, is. And I just thought, you know, I'm—I don't want to wake up one day and say I miss my son's childhood and I can't get it back. Uh, I can work hard again, but I can't get his childhood back. So um, I said, I got to rethink this whole thing, and I decided to just pull out of the uh, corporate lifestyle and start my own consulting business in San Francisco purely so I could control my schedule. I loved the work and I I loved working full time, but I just, I, I wanted two things. I wanted to be able to say goodnight to my son in person. What you don't know, when I was at Gateway, every night for a year, no matter what I was doing, and it was usually a business dinner every night, I would excuse myself and I would go out to the car. I would call my son. And we would take turns. Either I would read him a story Aww. or he would read me a story. Aww. And then say goodnight and then I would go back to my dinner. So we did that for a year. That's so I said, amazing. I just wanna be there in person to tell him goodnight and I wanna be there in the morning to say good morning. Amazing. And then the rest I can, you know, work my head off like I love to in between. Um, so I did. I started Kathy Stoffer Consulting. Was that a scary it's totally transition? Yeah. Because yeah. you
0: had always worked for these giant companies and this, right. this was now you were on your own and you kind of had to yeah. kind of hustle and, I had never and get, done it before. get your own business and kind of do everything,
1: right? The hardest thing was, um, I got my first, you know, assignments, um, pretty quickly, but the hardest thing was pricing it. Like I had no idea how to do that. So you begin, you just do you it. You figured it out. Cause you, you figured, just do it. And you then figured you figured everything else from out. That. Yeah. yeah. And you could be wildly wrong, but you just you know, hopes that, so yeah. inspiring just yeah. to hear like so that. You took the it.
0: risk. You didn't know what to expect. You didn't even know how to do part of the job, and you just figured it out. That's right. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah.
1: So you were a consultant for about ten years. Is that right? Right. So I started Kathy Stoffer Consulting, and having been an operator all my career, I was more an extension of. The, you know, it may have been the CEO, um, it may have been the leadership team. I mean, it either give them that extra horsepower, the extra insight, that extra oomph they needed to get over a hump. And sometimes it was with really small companies like Zipit, which we again had the opportunity to work together on. Right. When you're a consultant, you do often get offered a full-time position because you've had a chance to sort of kick the tires on both sides. And But you know I was firm this was that was not my goal so I I twice I accepted more of a a regular role even though I kept my consulting going and then I also did a pure startup which was you know literally sitting in a room like this with uh four or five engineers and going out and getting their first customers that's amazing and it was just interesting because I that was one thing I had not done was a pure today's version of startup good guys was a version of a startup but there was no no VC it was just sell some and then use that money to invest more in the business. In this case, it was more getting funding and it was a um, mobile social shopping app. Interesting for sure. Uh, And I love that I had that exposure, but now I limit myself to it, to advising, um, startups rather than being, uh, you know, in the room with them all day long. So I I just love the variety and the flexibility that I was able to have as a consultant. But I was always at sort of an arm's length length distance because you're not part of the team. And so for me, the board work has sort of been the perfect combination because you are part of sort of a regular team and you are connected to the to the brand in the but business but you have that flexibility it's you're not for. every single day i'm not, you're that. not monogamous Love. right right for me a great way to sort of put it all put it all together
0: all right so let's fast forward yeah so now you are here working with all these corporate boards you're the chairman of a few of the boards you know, it's kind of a different role because you probably have more flexibility now. You're It's not like, is it set hours? or? It's
1: different. Um, no, it's not set hours. The great things about boards, being on boards, is that meetings do tend to be um, planned out far in advance. Public boards, they're usually planned out three years in advance, mm-hmm. so you can really plan around it. But the other thing is that when they need you, they need you. And things can come up unexpectedly, right. and you need to be... There and available, so yeah, a lot of flexibility. But also, you never say no. Don't really have time right now. Right, you're kind of on call. Yeah, have a minute, and you're like, yeah, and a minute is usually really an hour. Public companies are less hands-on. Private equity, the the board members and especially the chairman are expected and welcomed to add, you know, be a strategic asset and really add value. And in both cases, where I am chair, I. Needed to eventually make a CEO change, so that was the most important thing. Was uh, that me, sounds scary? Assessing, yeah, the CEO and then telling them goodbye. And
0: um, is that your job to tell them? Yes. Wow. It and it's probably a man. They yeah, were men. They were men.
1: Yeah. Um, it's just a necessary part of the right. job, but it's it usually is. a relief for everybody once it's done because it you know it means it's not going well. Do they usually expect it, or is it shocking when that happens? You know, I think it's like anything, a major life event like death. I mean, it's like, it's always shocking and sudden when it happens, even when you're expecting it. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nobody ever feels like, oh, I, I'm nailing it. I mean, that, usually that does never happen. They know that there's, you know, some some issues, but it's usually always more sudden than you expect. All right, let's uh, shift gears a bit.
0: So I want to hear,
1: what is your leadership style? How do you describe yourself? Ah, uh, Wow. That is a good question, Valerie. I would say that I am, um, my style tends to be to, you know, always try to understand first. Um, I am definitely oriented towards action and towards solutions. I am persistent and tenacious. You know, sometimes that works in, that's more management than it is leadership. You know, model behavior. I mean, my, my belief is always Understanding things in my very early days, it was just too easy to get snowed. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm gonna understand this inside and out, upwards and downwards, backwards and forwards, so that I know if I'm being, you know, hoodwinked or if there's a better way to do things. But in general, I would say my leadership style now is, particularly as a chair, because as a board member, I wouldn't say that you're really considered a leader. You're 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 a collaborator, and as a, a, a chairman with a CEO, you need to be. Um, Again, there can only be one CEO, so you need to be a safe place for them to share sort of their concerns, what they're thinking about, to be a sounding board, to be able to give feedback, but to be educated enough on the business to be able to to actually help them.
0: You also mentioned that you have learned to trust and value a beginner's mind. Can you expand on that a bit?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I think that, I mean, that has been my style. Every time I feel like I I get to sort of what's supposed to be the destination, right? So whether it's, you know, being being president and CEO or, you know, it's doing something, it's like, okay, did that. Now move on to something else. Like I had never, anything that I've done, I sort of had never done that before. And rather than trying to stay in one lane and just be the best at that and the absolute authority, I love being able to be an authority, but I don't wanna just stay put. So I, I think curiosity is just so important and so valuable. And I love going into businesses and into roles where I can apply all my hard-earned experience. You mean know, so many times you meet people where they they don't listen, you know, cause they feel like they already have all the answers and uh, you just miss so much then. So I think having a beginner's mind, having curiosity and not, Needing to feel like you're the smartest person in the room is really valuable.
0: What did your generation do better than the younger generation, and vice versa?
1: Well, I just think the the younger generation, uh, I think, is just so much more open. They don't see differences as much, whether they're you know physical differences, mm-hmm. racial, mm-hmm. any kind of orientation. It's just you know. I don't I think people are just more open in general. My pe- personal pet peeve is when people complain about millennials. And I always say, but who raised them, right? right. I, mean, Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I think that they're a product of their environment. And so if they are whatever people say millennials are, I think that something has to do with the parenting style. Certainly there's them. something generational and, and you know external. But parenting, I think parenting style really does influence people a lot it's just different right and with with um in a digital age everything is just so much faster right that's the difference what is
0: your actionable advice for women who are listening to this podcast
1: i would say i mean it seems so corny but it's you know it's it's really to trust yourself and trust your instincts i mean it just strikes me that you know now in my 50s i mean how often I won't trust my instinct for whatever reason, it could be something very silly and mundane. And then it's like, I should have trust my instincts. And and you know we, we're always talking about building trust with each other, but how long it takes you sometimes to trust yourself, right? It's just so important to listen to that voice rather than what other people are trying to tell you. Um, because other people always try to persuade you for a variety of reasons, but I think that you really need to be clear. Listen to your own voice. I think that, uh, You can pretty much do anything that you want. You just have to go for it and not to take things personally unless they are. I think if we're talking about in business, I think rarely are things personal. Yeah. How do you define success? Ah, Well, for me, success is being independent, being able to decide what you want to do. Um, whether it's when you get up in the morning or, you know, just being able to have choices. I mean, I think to me, that's what success is. And sometimes your choice is to be, you know, a high-flying executive. And sometimes your choice is to be a stay-at-home mom. As and long as it's your choice. Exactly. To me, that's success is, is being able to, to have choices
0: all right well I think we've done it Kathy thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule you have always been such an inspiration to me and I'm super excited that we got to spend this
1: time together and learn from you me too I wouldn't have done it for anyone else I do not like talking about myself but for you I know when I called you when I called you
0: you were very very hesitant
1: yes I can
0: probably attest everybody in this room has learned some great lessons from you so thank you thank
1: you